Hey everyone, it's our season finale. Want to give a big thanks to all of our guests, partners, and most importantly, you, our listeners. Special shout out to Ford's Gin for being a great partner on this season's Beyond the Drink episodes. If you missed any of those, be sure to check them out. We already have an exciting season nine in the works with some amazing guests, but first the Beyond the Plate team is going to take a short break. So make sure you stay tuned by hitting that subscribe button on your podcast player or follow us on social media at BT Plate Podcast and on Cappy's Plate. And Beyond the Plate would not be Beyond the Plate without the amazing team that brings this podcast to life. So a very special shout out to the best in the biz, Ian Cohen, Joe Yetton, Sean Petrosian, and Sarah McClellan, me. Enjoy this week's episode. All right, Chef, for our audio test, we like to have all of our guests name five of something. So for you, and I've got a reason here, name five hole-in-the-wall restaurants in Houston that you take out-of-towners to. Oh, man. Hi, Kang, for Cantonese seafood, because Tamarind Dungeness crab is delicious. Crawfish and noodles, especially during crawfish season right now, you can't beat it. London Sizzler, just fantastic. Win. For like uh, kind of an elevated Vietnamese, you know, it's a BYOB and so it's kind of a cool thing. And then when someone just wants like, I want down and dirty Vietnamese, we go to Cali sandwiches because it's the best banh mi out there. And their chai go is fantastic. But yeah, those are my, man, those are not just when friends come into town. That's where we eat a lot. Yeah. Love it. You sound good. Let's do it. Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm a chef by trade and hospitality professional. By day, I head up Rachel Ray's culinary operations and co-founded her cooking and kids charity called Yummo. Five years ago, I had the idea to put together a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Hence, the name Beyond the Plate. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you listened before, we're so glad you're back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or, like the chefs we feature, make a difference in your community. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Graduate Hotels. Graduate Hotels is a collection of handcrafted hotels anchored in university-driven cities around the globe. Each hotel has a unique design based on its local college, various campus legends, and the town's history. And they got a new location, huh, Cappy? They do have a new location, Ian. Their newest one is in Palo Alto. It's the Graduate Palo Alto, beautifully restored 1929 historic hotel that's located in the heart of downtown with lots of cool touches. Graduate is known for... I actually read a great article on this hotel. It was a hotel like 100 years ago nearly, and then it was apartments, and then it's a hotel again. Anyhow, they've got that fun custom wallpaper, artwork inspired by nearby Stanford University. And I bet they got a good food and beverage offering. You always like to talk about that. I do always look to talk about that. And you mentioned, I mean, you have, right? In the Seattle property, in the Shota episode, in the Homestead room for the Evanston live episode we did. So what are you going to tell me about this one? I mean, Graduate does some great food and beverage stuff and they're doing it again. Graduate Palo Alto has two unique restaurants. They have Lou and Herbert's Cafe and President's Terrace Rooftop Bar. Hear me out, Ian. President's Terrace Rooftop Bar is the only rooftop bar in town, which is kind of odd. You'd think Palo Alto may have more, but not. Both spots have incredible locally driven food and cocktails and are great hangouts for all kinds of visitors. To learn more about Graduate Hotels and book your trip, go to graduatehotels.com and follow them on Instagram at graduatehotels. Graduate, we thank you. 
One more thing, get some awesome Beyond the Plate merch. You can find a link in your podcast player or go to our website, beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, hoodies, and more. Again, that's beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Today's guest was raised in the Midwest and began his fine dining career at Brennan's of Houston, where he spent seven years in the kitchen and then ran the wine program for two. Already an award winner, he went on to win plenty more with Underbelly, his restaurant he opened to support the Houston food community and its suppliers. And by plenty more awards, I mean James Beard Award semifinalist for Best New Restaurant, one of the best new restaurants in the country by Bon Appetit and Esquire, one of the 10 best new chefs in America by Food and Wine in 2013, and then 2014 James Beard Award for Best Chef Southwest. He's a cookbook author. He's been featured on many TV shows. And if all this wasn't enough, this chef does not stop giving back to his community through his incredible Southern Smoke Foundation. And of course, that's one of the many reasons we love him here at Beyond the Plate. Please enjoy this episode as we go Beyond the Plate with Chef Chris Shepard. What is up, chef? (laughs) (laughs) Man, everything under the sun. Thanks for having me on. This is long overdue. You were like one of the first chefs I, no joke not blowing smoke. You were one of the first chefs I really wanted to have on this podcast, but I always wanted to do it in person. And I never got to Houston and our paths were crossing in a weird way. And then the pandemic happened, but here we are, season finale, yo. It changes a lot of things, you know, but I'm really happy to be sitting here looking at your face on this little computer and having this conversation with you. It's good to chat. There's a reason why I asked the question in the audio test of Houston restaurants. And it's because when I first went to my first time actually in Houston and to Underbelly, you had this brochure-like piece of paper near the host stand. And it had a list of favorite places or places you encouraged everyone to visit in Houston. And this has honestly stuck with me since over 10 years. This has stuck with me. And I talked about it a number of times with people. It's like when most restaurants are doing what they can to get customers to return to the restaurant, you were encouraging people to not come back until they tried other Houston restaurants. (laughs) Did you know your food was that good that you can be like, yo, go visit (laughs) other people? (laughs) What was your motivation there? You know, Underbelly was a special time and place and it was a special restaurant. and It was really driven by the city of Houston, right? But not just Houston. It's kind of like the thought process that if it's happening in this city, it's happening all over the country, right? And that is diversity and food and understanding it and not just like taking it for granted, right? It's about like kind of getting involved into it as well. Understanding it from a different side. And it was about sitting down and having a conversation and not just going out to eat, but learning a little bit about the folks that are cooking this food that made the choice to live in these cities and these areas. And so it was like with Underbelly, it's like we wanted to be influenced by the food. We didn't want to do the food. But if you wanted the food, these are the places you had to go to get the food. Interesting. Does that make sense? Totally. I love it. So like, I want to, I want you to taste fish sauce. I want you to really get down and dirty at Saigon Pagalak with it. And so that, that was kind of the goal. Like, hey, we want you to come back. We do. We, we live in a city of four or five million people, right? You're not going to come here every day. But your next meal, maybe go try this out. And then maybe another meal after that, go try this out. Maybe in two weeks, come back here. Or a month, whatever, or three days, however you want to do it. But it was it was about learning, and it should be every day. Absolutely. I think the one other time I got a dose of that, we were in San Sebastian, Spain, a while back, and we were fortunate enough to have three Michelin star lunch 
one day. It was at Mugaritz. Incredible meal, obviously. And we had asked our server, like, any suggestions on where to go for pinchos or lunch or whatever. And he came back to the table at the end of the meal with a sheet of paper that he had all of the staff write down their favorite places that they go when they're off. And I was like, that was fucking cool. Well, that's what you want, right? Because you can read every list. You can do the Google search on everything. But like when you start talking to people that are actually in the industry, going out and eating food, they have a different experience. And it's good to see those experiences. For sure. Let's go back a little bit. Tell us about I want to hear about like little Chris Shepard, like what you were getting. <laughs> Did you grow up in Nebraska or Tulsa? I grew up in Tulsa. I was born in Nebraska, okay. but I grew up in Tulsa. I didn't know that. My father-in-law lives in Tulsa. Do you go back there at all? I haven't been back like 10, 12. Oh man, maybe longer than that now. My father-in-law yeah, used to live in California time. and he moved back to Tulsa where he's from like eight years ago. So instead of saying, let's go visit your dad, Katie, in Santa Barbara, we're saying... Let's go to Tulsa <laughs> to visit your dad. It's a little different, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. I haven't been back. Lindsay keeps saying, hey, we should go. It's really where I learned a little bit about without knowing it. Right. And this was a very when I sat down and I looked at it again less than 10 years ago, probably seven or eight years ago when I started talking to somebody about Tulsa. And I was like, I grew up going to steakhouses there. Right. But I, instead of like cream spinach and slab salad. We got baba ganoush and hummus and smoked bologna because they were all Lebanese steakhouses. So like part of the thing was like you got the pickle plate, you got hummus and you got pita. And then like why? And then like your steak came after that. And it was like that was just the cultural thing. Like without knowing it, that was a steakhouse to me was a Lebanese run steakhouse where you got all of the salad teams and the goodies. And I'd like to go back and see how that still how it exists and how it does. Cause like a lot of the barbecue places there were all Lebanese owned too. That's why you had like a giant smoke baloney thing. I gotta check that out next time I'm there. I don't get out to explore as much as I would like to. I try to check out some old school places and get like the Oklahoma fried onion burger and stuff like that. So there's a place, it might still exist, but back then in the day it was called Jamil's. And that was the Lebanese steak. That was the steakhouse that we went to. I feel like we've interviewed, like Rick Bayless is from Oklahoma City or Tulsa, one of the Oklahoma, yeah, City. Oklahoma City. Mm -hmm. Okay, his family had a barbecue. Yeah, there's only a handful. Yeah. Of people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what was your childhood like? What kind of stuff were you getting into? Trouble. Trouble. Yeah. Trouble. I always say, it, yeah, because like my path to this industry was a little bit different. I was just one of those kids that was like, I'm not going to make a decision in life of what when I what I'm going to do forever when I'm 15 because. It just didn't make sense to me. And I wasn't the best student because it was boring to me, right? It was just like history, blah, blah, geometry, blah, blah. Like, what am I going to do? Blah, blah. And I probably should have paid attention more. But, you know, I went to Tulsa Junior College and then I might be the only person that you know that was asked to just not come back. <laughs> it's like, I go to class and then I'd get up and leave and go play ping pong because it was like, oh, this is boring. Like, and finally they asked me, like, maybe you should take your time and just figure out what you want to do. You're wasting money. Don't come back. And I was like, okay. And so I took a job as a dishwasher in a sushi bar. And it's still there. It's called Fuji. And this was 1993. And so it, it was one of those things that I just would eat. My friends were working there. I needed something to do. And I was making it like $4 an hour or something like that, washing dishes, scrubbing eel pots and peeling shrimp. And finally, like, they needed a tempura guy. So I stepped in. And then it's like, I learned how to do saute. And like, finally, I'd been there for two years. And I asked my boss, Nobu, I was like, can I work the sushi bar? And he was like, no. And he's like, you're not what people expect. Again, 
This is 1994 at that time in Tulsa, and it might be the only sushi bar around, you know, still trying to make its way. And he was like, they want to see me up there. They want to see, you know, the, and I was like, I get that. He's like, you, but you, you're good and you need to go to culinary school. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. And he's like, well, it's where they teach you how to cook. He's like, you already learned really good fundamentals here, but you need to progress this. He's like, you have a love for it. And I was like, all right. And so my parents had moved here into Houston a couple years before that. And so when I started looking at culinary schools, it was like, do I go to the CIA? Do I go to Johnson and Wales? Do I go to the artist too? And it was really one of those things like, I don't really, I started looking at the curriculums. It made me realize that it wasn't about the curriculum. It was about the individual, right? Is that back then there wasn't really an internet. And so you had to mail off and they would send you a packet. And I started looking at it and I was like, it's all the same thing. This one's just cheaper and it's free rent. And so I decided to move to Houston then, but like growing up, man, cooking with my family. Were they into, was, was your family into food? Did mom or dad cook? My mom. Yeah, my mom. My dad actually was the first one to get me to cook. I was four. He put me on the back of a stool and I made breakfast. That, that had so many freaking scrambled like shells and <laughs> shit. And my mom ate it. And I feel so bad now. But she's like, I still remember it. I was so mad at him. He's going to fall and burn himself. And it's just like. Of course, your protective mother. But like I would lay on the floor and read cookbooks and I still have you got a second? Yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna yeah, grab yeah, it real go. quick. This is cool. Yeah, this is please. cool. It's actually the only thing that I've kept with me my entire life. Wow. What book is that? Walt Disney. Wow. The Mickey Mouse cookbook. Love it. And so I would sit on the floor as a kid. And basically as a kid and read these things. And be like, I want to make Pinocchio's pea soup with cheese crackers. And I was like eight. And so we would go through and get all of the things that we needed to make. We would go to the grocery store and buy everything. And then we would make it. I wonder if they still sell that. If they do, I'm going to buy it for my kids. It's, it's, I'm sure there's a newer, a new version because this was like 1976. Wow. So. That's so cool. And your, your parents know you were into cooking. Is that why they got it for you? Or is it random? My mom is a huge cookbook collector, right? And so they got me something that would, like, little did she know that it would become a real bad problem in my household as well. Because I'm still the guy that buys a lot of cookbooks and reads. I mean, the computer right now is sitting on a stack of four cookbooks. <laughs> Which ones? Well, there's a Taiwanese cook, a Taiwanese American cookbook from Winsong, uh, Arabia from Real, and then, or from Rima Seal. And then listen to your vegetables from Sarah. Love it. I got them stacked everywhere. And my wife's like, you're going to have to stop. Like, we're getting ready to have the one in, one out conversation. Your wife and my wife would get along real well. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, you got another book. She's I, I like, what's this in the mail? Another book? I was like, she's like, where are you putting this one? You just had three this week. Where are all the, you know, I'm like, places. So you don't need to know where yeah, I am. Don't you're, worry yeah. about it. <laughs> She's like, I'm pretty sure you already have this one. And I was like, ooh, I actually have three. Like, I didn't realize I bought this one again. That's, I don't know if I've done that, but that'd be amazing. What a compliment to that cookbook. So you go to Art Institute of Houston for culinary. Yeah. Did you, what did you think you were going to do when you were in school? I'll never forget it. We sat down that first day and I sat down next to what is now my best friend, Randy Evans. We sat down. I was like, there's a table of four people. Hey, how are you? Hey, how are you? How are you? And the person walked in, chef. White coat, hat. I was like, ooh, what did I do? And he's like, who's made a consomme? And I was like, a what? And like three people raised their hands. And I was like, 
what the hell did he just say? <laughs> like, I have no idea what a consomme is. And then like, so it really kind of intrigued me. And then it was one of those things like you get to play with knives and fire and food and flavors and like, it's a different life. And I really loved it. Did, did you like realize you liked school at that point? I liked that school. I couldn't agree more. I was never a big school person. I did fine. Once I went to culinary school, I was like, I didn't think of it as school. It's like, it was fun. You know, it, it was like, and I still never think of it as a job. Yeah important you know yeah because that thing like you think of it as a job well then it's kind of downhill from there right but i just it, it gave me the opportunity to i always feel that like cooking and professionally right personally whatever at home or wherever that when you're cooking for somebody you're telling them a story and you're giving a bit of your soul to whoever that is right and that's the, i think the deepest part of cooking for me is that like when i cook it's because i i show love and so i don't know i, I don't look at it as anything other than that. I love it. So what did you do out of school? You know why I asked that? Because in your bio, it says, started his fine dining career at Brennan's of Houston. And then I was like, well, what, his what about before what that? Before that? <laughs> <laughs> so I worked at a place called Tommy's Patio Cafe. Well, I worked for a master chef during school, right? So that was like, ooh, CMC. Like, I, I don't know if that stuff even really exists anymore. I, I'm sure it does, but not in a realm of that I understand it. And so it was like, I worked at Houston Country Club where there's like the certified executive chef and the certified banquet manager, the certified- they have five, like, five I, abbreviations on their so, coats. And, and a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> ACF, CCA, what, all this stuff, like whatever. Okay, <laughs> good job. I mean, it's cool, but I, I did that. And then I worked at a place called Tommy's Patio Cafe in Clear Lake because it was just an hour drive going home from school every day. And I was on like, well, it was a different part of my life, but I was with somebody that uh, she moved down here and it, it, I call it a date because it, it was, we got a marriage annulled, but like whatever. But she started working for my buddy's family as a, as a like she was taking care of their kids, a nanny. And so we moved to Conroe, which is an hour north of Houston. So I never really lived in Houston. I lived either hour south or hour north. And Randy was working at Brennan's. And I was working at this country club that his family got me a job at, whatever. And he's like, hey, I'm going to swing by tonight on the way home. And I was like, all right, cool. And I'll never forget it. I was like, so we were having a glass of wine. And I was like, what'd you do like today? Like, what was your, what was service like? He's like, man, we did like 475 covers tonight. I was like, wow, like talk me through it. And he's like, walking me through it, man, I'm getting pumped. And he's like, what'd you do? I was like, I put out the fucking taco buffet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the country club, I was out by eight o'clock. And I was like, this sucks. I mean, it just really, I mean, it was like, this isn't what I wanted to do. And so two weeks later, he took me in for dinner for my birthday. And two weeks after that, I was working there and just really found a, a love for like, just getting just busy. I loved it. Cooking, 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 like stress, stress, stress. You know, it's just like I chewed on it. I loved it as a young, I was a young cook. It was great. I mean, you were there for a long time. Nine years. Well, how, what was it about that place that kept you there? I could do whatever I want. You know, once you realize that like you know, Brennan's was a, is a fun place and that was the people. But like once you realize that Sunday brunch pays for everything else. And once you got the trust of ownership, like, and you understand costs and you understand purchasing, you understand all that. It was fun for me to just like, I can buy the products that I've always heard of and I could cook the food that I always wanted to. Understanding that like these things still have to, like you still have to pay homage to the classics, right? And so like the menu was always set up to be like, here's your standards. Here's the, I shouldn't say standards because they, they were the elevated like Texas Creole. And then there'd be like four or five things that were in there that were like, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but I think it looks, looks good. So it was, I had a lot of fun. And then seven years into it, the wine buyer left 
And so uh, when I started school, back when I was working for the master chef at the country club, every time I get paid, so every two weeks I'd go out and I'd take $100 and I would buy like five bottles of Sauvignon Blanc from places around the world. And then, and I would, and then the next time it would be Pinot Noir from different areas of the world. And then, cause I read about this magazine and I read this magazine called Food and Wine, <laughs> right? I was like, if you know food, you gotta have to know wine too. Like it's a hand in hand thing. And so I basically would learn terroir through like just going out and like, I would sit down and I would taste them all. And then I'd cook with the rest. And so it was like, I would understand like what Burgundy was supposed to taste like versus Willamette versus Central, like Central Coast versus Sonoma Coast Pinot Noirs. And so it was really kind of a passion of mine. And wine was just always kind of that big draw for me. And like Randy and I, would, we'd always drink a lot of wine instead of like going out and having cocktails. It'd be like, let's go open that Syrah. That's cool. You know? <laughs> it was like, and so I, I took the first level of the Court of Master Psalms when I was just uh, like as a sous chef, just because I wanted to learn more. And then when the wine buyer left, I talked to my chef, who was the general manager. I was like, hey, can I run the wine program? And he was like, what? Yeah, sure. Why not? Let's see how it works. And I was like, I'm not going to wear a suit. I'm just going to wear a chef coat and you can put the wine guy on it instead of like sous chef, whatever. And he was like, all right. So it was fun. I got to learn and run a wine program and really have fun with that. Also, in the middle of that, I got to hire somebody who you just did a podcast with. Sarah. Sarah Grunberg. Yeah. She, that was a f- and my little sister. Yeah. She told a great story about when we all first met, which I'm not going to blow it here, everyone. You're going to have to go back a couple episodes. You're going to have to listen to yeah, that one. That's a good story, though. I love yeah, that. She's awesome. I love it. She's a good one, oh, man. Yeah. She's a good cook. I just sat at the bar and she's had some a really food good last week. And every time I go, like, I'm blown away. Like, every time I yeah, go, I was like, this so is good. so damn good. It is. There's not another Italian restaurant like that, you know, with them making pasta to order and, like, just the team that's behind it. Like, everybody's so, like, Yes, they they bought in and they believe in the motto and, and the, the, what what's happening. Yeah, it's awesome. amazing. It's a great restaurant. Just a great restaurant. Did you so. think you were going to stay in wine at that time, or did you know you were going to go back in the kitchen? You know, it's funny because I wanted to get back in the kitchen. I only did it just to like understand the front of the house because most chefs don't deal with front of the house well, right? Kitchen people. But I'll never forget, like, someone was like, table 22 said this was this. And I was like, you tell them it's not. <laughs> and they were like, you go tell them. And I was like, damn, how do I do that? And so it was like, I needed to understand how that worked. And so that's how I moved out to the front of the house. And I was like, I'll get back in the kitchen in a couple of years. And then like, it was funny because once you, once I made that step, everybody was like, your foot's out the door. Like you're a front of the house person. And I was like, bullshit. And I'll never forget my GM set me up on an interview. He's like, I think you need to have this interview. You need to see what it's like outside. Like, you just need to just have the conversation. I was like, all right. And I went to this hotel and they had some recruiters in from Vegas and pretty prominent people too. And I can say they made a bad judgment call, but because I did like two, three interviews with them. And then finally they were like, look, you've been at Brennan's too long. You're never going to leave. That's all you're going to really amount to. You just need to stay there. And I was like, no shit. All right. Were you interviewing for cooking or wine? Yeah, it was for a chef position. In Vegas. Yeah, but no, it was in Houston, but they had people that were like big time recruiters come in and like do the hiring process for them. And so I was like, all right then. But then uh, Charles Clark, the guy who I went to culinary school with, came along and he was opening a restaurant. He had one, Ibiza, and he wanted to do another one called Catalan. And so him and his partner, Grant, we talked a lot about it. And the thing that they really liked about it was that I understood both front of the house and back of the house. 
And at that time, you didn't see a whole lot of open kitchens and they were building this open kitchen out and they're like, I could see what a guest wanted from across the dining room before they knew they wanted it. And so it's just a little bit different thought process. And that's where I met Antonio Gianola and Matt Pridgen. When you left Brennan's, were you executive chef? No, I was, I was the wine guy. You were the wine guy. I made it up to executive Sue, and Randy was going to be the chef. And so I was like, hey, man, I'm going to run the front so that we can kind of work together on this. And it was a lot of fun. But I wanted to get back in the kitchen. Yeah. What kind of food was Catalan? It was supposed to be really Spanish inspired. That lasted about a month and a half. I, then I changed it all. I learned more about me. I understood that like there needed to be a certain amount of dishes that were there for a reason. Right. And then we had a conversation it was like, you need to have this. You need to have this dish. You need to have the comforting things. But other than that, whatever you want to do. And those guys were really open to like whatever. And so it was very nice because it got me to be able to learn more about me. And it got me to learn more about the city and local farming and whole animal butchery. And it just gave me the ability to learn all of these things. It was like, again, it took the Brennan's philosophy like, hey, these are the things that pay for you to be able to do these things. And I always think that young chefs, when they take these positions, they don't understand, like, historically, these dishes need to be there, right? It can't all be, when you're working with somebody else's money, it can't always be like, whatever you want, there needs to be some kind of like, understanding that like, hey, this is what's going to make me grow. And I took the long route of growing. I didn't open my first restaurant until I was 40. Did Catalan close or did you leave to open? I left and then they redid it. It closed after I left. It was Underbelly the project. And that was what Underbelly, yeah. So at the time, like I met Lindsay Brown, who is now my wife, and she was working for the city doing PR for the city of Houston Convention of Visitors Bureau. And she got myself and three other chefs together and said, hey, I, you know, this was like, oh, seven, oh, eight, maybe. She's like, you know, the city's kind of on its verge of people understanding like that Houston's got really good food and I want to do something to promote that. And like, we're chefs, like they're not talking, nobody's listening to what she's saying, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So where did you eat, you know? And it's like, we're t- all of us were having these conversations about like this new Thai spot or this new Vietnamese place over on the street or this like Indian spot that we went to or, oh hey, I got this crawfish spot, whatever it may be, right? And then finally, <laughs> one of us just looks at her and says, why don't we just take people to where we want to go eat? And she's like, wait, what? Because she had never heard of these things either. And she was doing, she was promoting the city. And so she was like, all right, let's get this together. And so we started these culinary tours. It was originally four chefs that started it. We brought other chefs on, but we would put 18 people together on a bus, loaded down with beer and wine, and then go to like three restaurants and a grocery store. And the conversation was that we would never go to our own places. Any chef that was involved with the tours, we never went there to restaurants because it wasn't about us, right? The press is going to write about that. They're going to talk about this. They're going to talk about that, but they're never going to talk about these little mom and pop places. And so we decided that that's where we wanted to go. And so we thought that it would sell for tourism and it was like 99.8% locals and they would sell out immediately. It was like people just sat waiting and calling in, you know, as fast as they possibly could. so cool. Or... She's like, I think we broke the internet again. <laughs> like the, the city's internet is like, it's down again. Because every time we'd sell it, go on so, you know, they sell it so fast. And it made me realize that if I was going to go and talk about 
So like we do three Vietnamese restaurants and we go down Long Point or we go down like we do a pig tour, a taco tour or whatever. But if I was going to know about those places then I needed to really know them. And so that's when I decided instead of going out staging around the world, I stage in my own backyard. I go work in like mom and pop Thai place, Szechuan, Vietnamese, Indian. And I just started understanding these people. And like, I'll never forget like Asian market. It was a grocery store with like the tiniest kitchen. And there's like four little ladies back there just crushing. And there was like 12 seats in the dining room. Right. And so I finally was like, hey, after like 30 times of asking and eating there all the time, they're like, okay, fine, come in. And the fir- my first day of stage, they just like stand in the corner, don't say anything. And it was like, first there's a language barrier, which was fine. But you know what breaks all language barriers? Donuts. <laughs> day two, I showed up with donuts. And then it was like, here, we're going to show you yeah. everything. And like, we're going to teach you and we're going to, you're a part of our family now. And so anytime I come in, they're like, Chris, come here. You know, like I started to make these little families around the city and it was just true love and respect. I go sit with the Patels and talk to auntie for hours. And then she'd be like, all right, I'm going to show you how to do this dish now. I'm like, all right. No, but it wasn't about that at that point. It was more about just being immersed in the community and being immersed into the family. And so that's where Underbelly came from. Underbelly was the side of things not seen. And arguably changed like the landscape of the culinary scene in Houston with what you did there. Yeah. It was just my idea that like people live on freeways in this city and they live outside. I mean, because I did it forever, right? I lived north of the city or south of the city and I'd get on a freeway and I'd go. But there's all these pockets and neighborhoods of people that you just don't see. And so it was kind of like bringing that to light. But doing it the dumbest way possible by doing only whole animal and only local produce. So we only bought garlic, mirepoix, herbs, citrus. Everything else was dropped off by farmers. And then Tuesday was 1,000 to 1,200 pound steer. Thursday, we had to have that broken down because that was Thursday was hog day. And so we'd have two to three 250 pound hogs show up. And then Friday was goat and lamb day. And then Saturday was poultry day. And by poultry, I just mean whatever he felt like. So it'd either be like 20 of whatever varietal chickens he was raising or ducks or guineas or sometimes wild boar because he'd trap them and feed them and then harvest it. And then seafood out of our water every day. So we changed the menu every single day. It was fun. I remember the first time you were giving me two, I feel like, were you making fish sauce in a barrel in the back or something? I tried that, <laughs> yeah, with the shrimp bycatch. Yeah, I remember that. So it was like, what is happening when we're dredging shrimp out of our waters? What happens to all the like the manhains and beltfish, ribbonfish, and like all these little things that nobody's gonna eat? What happens to it? And it's like it just becomes like dumped back in. I was like, I want it, so I tried it. It was nasty. <laughs> and then you did it. I should have gone to Fuquak before I decided to do that <laughs> instead of <laughs> instead of after because I was like, oh, I made that mistake. Did you do some that like wagyu charcuterie situation? You had something mm-hmm. hanging for like a year. Yeah. We'd hang an uh, entire back legs cure them like prosciutto that's right yeah they were good it was good so i remember on that same trip when i was mentioning the first time i went to houston underbelly you took me and a bunch of my friends because we were in town for a wedding you basically did one of those tours you were just talking about we went to a few different places in chinatown i want to say and i laughed because you know your phone was ringing and you're like oh sorry i was like you could pick up your phone, dude. And then you had caught wind that food and wine may be in town. I think back in the day, that was Kate Crater. It was. Yeah. So you and the restaurant won a bunch of awards and accolades there. Was Underbelly always exciting to you or at any point in your early days there, did you 
want to throw in the towel. No, never. I mean, that's me full tilt, right? I want to do it as much as I possibly can and as like change it as much as possible. Like if I have to sit in a room with like keeping the menu the same for six months, I'm going to lose my damn mind. Like I'd be the special king, right? We have 32 specials tonight and 12 things on the menu. Like, cause I'm just, I want this, I want that. I want to try this, I'm going to do that. But you know, I understand that that doesn't make sense. And that's why when it came down to changing it, that's why I had to change it. Cause it was like, we opened up one fifth which was another stupid idea, but a concept that five-year lease, five different restaurants in that lease, and <laughs> dog it. But that's when it was like, I need to let people fly, right? I need to let other chefs run these things. But doing that at Underbelly was not fair to anybody, except for myself, right? Because there's got to have to be that one crazy, insane person that's going to drive that. Okay, let's change. This is what we got. This is what the farmers are bringing. Like, you got to be careful what you ask for, because I never said no, really, to like, hey, man, like, I got this growing. Do you need anything? Yes. Hey, can you grow this for me? I was like, I want to make my own sesame oil. Can you grow sesame around here? Yes. And then like, got to be careful. Like when someone says, hey, I, I have a really good crop of corn. I got like a thousand extra ears. Can you do something with it? I was like, yeah, bring it, man. Like you never know what a thousand ears of corn looks like until it's sitting in front of you. I literally had some of my team just driving it around the city, giving it to other friends and restaurants. Just like, use it, please. Don't let it go to waste. Just use it. Because like, I mean, it's like, what does sour corn taste like? We'll figure it out. You know? <laughs> like, we make corn everything because so, it's just a lot. But, you know, it was yeah. fun. And for the listener, if you picked up on some of the, uh, let's call it innovation Chef has done, he, sometimes he calls it stupid. Like, I was stupid. <laughs> and like, I, when I hear that, I think like, brilliant. You're brilliant. Hey, everyone, want to take a quick second to give some love to our friends at Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Uh, they're more than just friends, Cappy. They're kind of family around these uh, these walls, at least in my house, because it's like another family member at the table every day. There's always the five of us and a Martin's product, trust me, <laughs> every day. I know you all are big fans. New product alert, everybody. Two of Martin's Potato Rolls and bread products are now a little sweeter. They're sweet dinner potato rolls and sweet party potato rolls. You could eat these fun little guys straight out of the bag like my kids do, or go ahead and make some cute little sliders, if you will. Still fluffy, still soft, still delicious. And here's a little bit more on Martin's. Martin's is an all-American family-owned and operated company founded in 1955 and headquartered in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. They're the number one potato roll in America, and as I like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better. Last year, everyone, Martin's donated nearly 40,000 pounds of bread and rolls to charitable causes. Pretty amazing. Their mission encompasses more than just baking the best bread and providing good American jobs. They also believe in giving back to their community and the world around them. Through volunteering time and donating resources, they support hundreds of charitable organizations such as food banks, after school programs, disaster relief, and others that provide sustenance and comfort to people in need both close to their baking facilities and abroad. To learn more about Martin's and check out some great recipes, go to potatoes.com and follow them on social media at potatoes. Martin's, we thank you. And now back to this week's episode. All right, so beyond the awards and accolades I rattled off in the intro, you also were a semi-finalist for James Beard, Outstanding Chef in 2019. You were named Rob Reports Chef of the Year that same year. You were nominated in 2020 James Beard Book Award for your first cookbook, Cook Like a Local, Cook Like Local Flavors That Will Change the Way You Cook. At what moment in your career did you feel like you made it as a chef? I don't think you ever do, right? I think there's always an insecurity around it. And I think that it's just about having self-confidence. But like, I think we all have ups and downs and successes and failures. And for the most part, what makes you good is that you always focus on the failures. 
right? You fuck about, oh, I could have done that better or I'll do that better the next time you try to figure those things out. And like, how do you, I guess for me, it's like, how do you just make people better, right? And that's at the end of the day, like that's all you can do because you're going to make good food or you're not like whatever. But like, how do you inspire and make people around you better? Right. That was the whole thing about Underbelly. It wasn't about the restaurant itself. It was about the city. It was about the culture. It was about, I always use this term as like a NASCAR thing, right? I don't really watch it anymore. Never really did. But I understand the, the philosophy that if all cars are going together, you're moving faster and more efficient. But once you break out, right to the back, right? And so it's like, I wanted to make sure that all, everybody was rising at the same time. And that was the goal. Like as much as we could talk about Underbelly, we could talk about Saigon Pagalac, or we could talk about Crawfish and Noodles, or we could talk about London Sizzler, or we could talk about whatever, right? It needed to all be spoken in the same breath. I like that. So you've, you opened a few more or more restaurants since Underbelly doing well. And then you shocked Houston and the restaurant world for that matter by deciding to step away from Underbelly hospitality. Can you share with us why? Yeah, you know, 2020 was hard. Right. And that whole time, like I learned a lot about leases. I learned a lot about a lot, but I learned about how to make it through it and make sure that the teams were good. And then for me personally, like we had the conversation, like, we built it after that to grow. Right. And to like be able to maybe go into new cities or do new things. Right. Because they weren't so much me anymore. Right. It wasn't the underbelly. It was the Georgia James. It was a steakhouse that was done in the, fillet, the the style that I think a steakhouse should be run. It was wild oats. It was a burger shop. It was the Georgia James Tavern. And then, you know, we moved everything into new locations. And then the conversation just be like, well, how do we keep going? And I, it wasn't for me, right? I didn't, I was just like at a point, like I'm having a hard time internally with not being able to go to each one of the restaurants on a daily basis and be a part of each of the team's life. And if we're going to grow more, I just, I don't know if that's really what I want. You know, I was getting to the point where I was turning 50 and it was just time for me to focus on Southern Smoke a little bit more because like, I'm sure we'll talk about Southern Smoke, but for me, running restaurants is really cool and fun. But saving people and helping people out is way more beneficial, way more emotional to me. I have that attachment. And the, you know, and, and the things that I had asked the team at Southern Smoke to do, like if I wasn't going to be a part of that, then I shouldn't be asking it. And so it was the right time, right? It was the right time for uh, Underbelly Hospitality to take that growth on that they wanted to take on. And it was the right time for me to focus on Southern Smoke to take care of where I wanted to see that go. Have you ever wanted to work like outside of Houston? Like has any other, I'm sure you've got really. offers, but has any other city piqued your interest? Yeah, I don't know how it would look, right? Because that would, again, mean I got to get on a plane or I got to drive or I got to be there. I can't, like the dishwasher is broken. How do, what, who, like I can't get there, right? Oh, we're working on this new dish. Oh, can't get there. Like it doesn't, it, I, I'm just not built that way, I don't think. Is there a dream restaurant? yeah. There is, but then it entails a whole bunch of other problems in my life, right? Because, <laughs> like, I want to be there three days a week. I want a restaurant where I don't feel like I have to be there. I were calling it a dream restaurant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, open up on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from, like, 5 to 8. Just tell my wife I'll be back in a little bit and actually mean it. I think Waxman said maybe, like, I want to say like Hawaii on a beach, a little chalkboard menu, cook what he wants to cook that night and only when i want to do it you know but leases don't work that way yeah <laughs> right <laughs> landlords don't yeah. like that you're like paying your lease per hour so, yeah <laughs> 
Maybe, maybe that's a new yeah. move. I don't yeah. know. But, you know, it's just like, I think that that can be done. But I think there has to be, you know, life has to be looked at in, in a financial matter, right? And what we call, Lindsay and I call buckets, right? You got to have a lot of buckets. And if you ha- only have one bucket, man, you got to make sure that thing is filled all the time. But if you got a bunch of buckets and you diversify yourself into many other things, then you, maybe that restaurant actually could work, right? Because it's not financially like what you need, right? It doesn't define you. You can do stuff that you define. Because I spent a lot, does that make sense? It's really weird. I spent yeah, a lot of time, it. yeah, I'll drop knowledge bombs on you all day long. I've spent a lot of, th- like, especially over the past two years, I've said it a lot. And I finally decided that it had to be, if I'm going to say it, I better mean it. And it, the saying is that this is what we do for a living. It's not our life. And you have to understand the balance in life. And I think a lot of people, we've talked about it, but sometimes you got to be about it. And so I think that was for me, one of the real big things for me. What was the bar when I was, I don't remember when I was there, I'm guessing around 2013, 14, I don't know. What was the bar down the street from Underbelly? Anvil. Was it? Anvil. Anvil. Is that the one that donated proceeds to a different charity every month or something? Uh, that was uh, Okra. Okra, okay. Yeah, Okra downtown. I yeah. still tell that story. It was awesome. Yeah. It's now called Angel Share. Oh, neat. But same philosophy. Yeah, I like that. Same philosophy, yeah. They basically pay their staff, they pay their bills. And then they put the money that they make into different charities and different organizations that basically they put up their local charities and local foundations and they put up like voting booth in there. And when you buy a drink, you get a coupon or a ticket and you go put it in. You go like, what charity do I like? And you put your ticket in and whoever wins that wins the next month's proceeds. So really cool. So I think we could go a ton of different directions with social impact just based on what we've already talked about. And I know you know this, but the podcast celebrates social impact with every guest. Learning how they all do it keeps us all inspired. Whoever the chef or bartender we speak with in whatever cause or organization they work with. So I wanted to let you kind of just give you the floor and share about Southern Smoke. So Southern Smoke started in 2015. Originally, my wife tells me to go shorter on this, but we were doing like dinners to raise money for scholarships, send kids to culinary school. And Antonio- Was that the Off the Wall series? Yeah, yeah. Off the Wall. It was fun. It was fun because we just pulled people off the wall because we had, you know, Underbelly had to, not only did we have like the list of places to go eat at, but each one of those places was on the wall. They had a photo. So we had 50 photos as you walked in and it was our map of the city. And so we'd just be like, all right, we're going to do British Indian. And it'd be like, okay, London Slizzler and Richard Knight, who owns Feast, which is a crazy British restaurant. And that's a British curry house. And we'll each have them do a course. And then we'll do a course that was inspired by them. Then it would be like Chinese. And then it'd be like, okay, we're going to have dim sum. We're going to have a Chinese food truck. And then we're going to have this Szechuan restaurant come in. And so they would all do a course and we would do a course. And the money that we raised would go to put somebody through culinary school. And Antonio, who I talked about earlier at Catalan, he was working at a wine shop. And so he would come in and be our guest song. Because Matthew, who was my general manager, been with me forever, and Sam. I wanted him to be at home on Sundays with his family because we were closed. Didn't want to make him work an extra day, but he always came in anyway. And we raised enough money to put somebody through school. And then Antonio asked me one night, he came in, I was writing menus for the next day. And uh, he's like, hey man, you're going to do those dinners again? I was like, I don't know, man. What do you, what do you want? You want to? Like, let's do it. And he said, like, can we do a dinner to raise money for MS? And I was like, yeah, but why? And he's like, well, I was diagnosed with MS this week. 
And I was like, oh, sit down, bro. <laughs> Let's have a conversation. You all right? And he's like, yeah, I'm good. I mean, I caught it at a good time and he was kind of diagnosed late in life. And, and so I said, well, yeah, but a dinner again, like we're doing these dinners and we're raising like 5,000. That's not, we're not getting anywhere. He's like, the money's not for me, man. I was like, all right, but like, we need to make sure that we can find a cure. Like there isn't one, like this isn't new. Like we got to figure it out. And so I, I said, let me ponder how we're going to do this. He's like, all right. And so I called Aaron Franklin, Rodney Scott, and Sean Brock. And I was like, do you guys want to do a dinner? And we'll do it out in the back parking lot. Maybe we get 300 people instead of the 100 or 150, whatever. And they said yes. And then I went to the mayor's department of special events because we were kind of getting pushed around by somebody with um, sidewalk encroachment. So I was like, can we just block off the sidewalks? My wife and I were there. And they said, what are you doing? I told them, no, nah, here's our stage. We're going to block off all the streets around you. We're going to give you the infrastructure, bathrooms, power, this, that. And I was like, what the fuck just happened, Lindsay? And she's like, we're throwing a festival, it sounds like. And I was like, I got to tell the guys this. And so I called them all. I was like, hey, man, you know that 250, 300? It's going to be more like 1,000, maybe 1,200. And they're all like, yeah, no problems, man, whatever. All right. And so that first year, I wanted to raise $100,000, and we raised $181,000. And then year two, we got more chefs out, more music, more bands, and we raised 284000 So for the we did two years, we raised almost half a, we donated almost half a million dollars to the, the MS Society, largest third-party fundraiser in five states in our region. And so it made a difference. And then Hurricane Harvey happened. We were about a month out from the festival and Hurricane Harvey came through and it really devastated the city of Houston. And there was a lot of funds going on. There was the mayor's fund, there was JJ Watts fund, there was the Red Cross, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, but not a penny would ever go into the hands of anybody in the food and beverage industry. No drive-through workers, no farmers, no people delivering milk, nobody. It wasn't going to happen. It all get put into infrastructure, which is great, too. So we decided, I looked at Lindsay, I said, we can't do this for the MS Society this year. We have to take care of our industry. And little did we know that our 501c3 that we finally gotten, we could write checks to people. And so we put together a way that people could apply. And then it would go through an application process, a verifying committee, and then it would go into an awards committee, none of which, which I was privy to. Still not to this day. I don't know who applies. I don't know who gets funded. And we took on 250 applications. And then through, once it finally came down to it, we funded 139 families a half a million dollars. And so at that point, I looked at Lindsay and I said, we have to do this for forever, right? We can always do something for MS, but MS has got, you know, they got bike races. They got everything. Like they got a lot of stuff that's going to help with them. And Antonio is always going to be our person. But we'll always do something for the foundation, but we got to figure out our industry because there is not a safety net for our industry. And we had one employee in January of 2020. And we hired our second employee February 1st of 2020. And then March, middle of March comes around, I would say middle of April happens. And I go back to that 250 applications that we took in. Middle of April, we had 35,000 applications in nationally. And so we ended up hiring 40 people that were furloughed or laid off, restaurant managers, cooks, waiters, bartenders, whatever, to become caseworkers. What do you mean by a caseworker? So they would basically start, we basically would go through a triage system, if you would. Like if someone needed 200 bucks to pay their cell phone, okay, we're back. We're going to push that back a little bit because this person doesn't have food put on their table for their kids, can't put their kids into the hospital or, or they're about to lose their home or whatever it may be. So these 40 people were kind of fielding all of these. Yeah. And so we, it would go through that system. We would go through 
this whole long kind of process. And we ended up that year, man, granting out over seven, six million dollars. In 2020. In 2020. Yeah. It was insane. And now we're at 14, 13 full-time employees. And I have granted out over $10.4 million to folks in crisis. But the thing that we started working on in 2018 is one of the things that I think one of the reasons why I made the decisions that I have lately, I wanted to talk about mental health. I wanted mental health to be kind of a focus. You just lost Anthony Bourdain and we lost some other friends. And I feel like if there was a system that we wouldn't have to have these kind of losses, if we could stand up and say, I'm not good, man. Like I'll stand with anybody and say that. Like I just, it's not a point in life where you're always great, right? There's things that happen in life that make things darker nights or tougher days. And so the conversation just became, how do we fix it? And so we pushed really hard. And actually in June of 2020, we worked with Mental Health America and the University of Houston, and we were able to provide free mental health care to anybody in the food and beverage industry and their children in the state of Texas. And it was really necessary and it's still very necessary. And since then, I, this is why I made the decision I did, because I, I said to our team, by 2028, we need to have free mental health care in every state in the country. I want anybody in all 50 states that's working in the food and beverage industry and their kids to be able to have free, have access to free mental health care and a program that's set up. And so not, we, we fund every state for sure, but we have programs now set up in Texas, Louisiana, California, Illinois, Pennsylvania, going into New York, Connecticut, and then we have six more states on track this year. That's amazing. So, yeah. Once we get about halfway through that, I want to go at legal. I want young chefs and restaurateurs to understand what lease negotiations look like, partnership agreements, immigration law, tax attorneys. Anytime somebody needs an attorney, I want somebody to be looking at it for them. Because you hear it all the time. Like, man, that restaurant was really busy. What happened? They didn't look at all the fine print. Because you know who did look at it? The landlord. They had an attorney look at it. And you talk to young restaurant owners that want to open something and like, What's your budget look like? And they're like, well, I got money for food. I got money for training. I got money for interiors. I got money for this. And then I was like, what about attorneys? And they're like, what? Like, dude, come on. Like, that has to be a part of your budget. So, and if, and that's such a hard thing to afford. So I want to make sure that like legal counsel was there for everybody at affordable or at, if no cost. Because lawyers need to do pro bono work anyway. So boy, might as well take it. The way our mental health program is, is that we set it up with universities that need actual hours for their students to graduate. So that program with the University of Houston, is that something you kind of collaborated with and started a program together? And I guess that's my first question. And my follow-up is, in these other states you mentioned, is that using that University of Houston program or are you partnering with other universities? We partner with other universities because you have to go state using, by state. Using that I'm calling a curriculum program using that. Yeah, using that thought process, yeah. And so Chicago has really, we opened that up six months ago and it is full tilt. Everybody's using it. It's, and even like the therapists and the people that are putting, that are doing the work are like, this is the most amazing program we've ever seen. This works. And it's like, that's great because it's, it's Latin speaking. It's all languages spoken. It's like everybody, like you say, like, look, man, you can talk to somebody and they're like, Gee. It's 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 at their own time, you know, and that's the beauty of it because one lost life is too many. And so if we can help make that change, that's the goal. So we could have done a whole podcast just on that. hundred percent. I actually reached out to Antonio and 
Yeah, because I was, you know, curious. I was like, Chris is a humble guy. Let's see what some real juicy stuff is. But he mentioned <laughs> similarly, and I sure. thought, <laughs> thought it was amazing. He, he was like, I actually just asked Chris for one of those off-the-wall dinners to raise a little money. And Chris looked at me and said, no, we're going to raise a lot of money. <laughs> I was like, well, that sounds very on brand for Chris. He doesn't like to do things small. Why do yeah. a little? Do a lot. You know, it was interesting at the end of the conversation, and I had like nothing to say after. I mean, that in a good way, because it was pretty amazing. He said, you know, this, what they're doing now helps the whole restaurant community. He said, he goes, it's amazing that something that started as a big negative turned out to be a big positive for so many people, which I thought was, was really nice. It's pretty awesome. So I've never really asked our guests this because it's kind of the purpose of the podcast, but you're a great person to give advice on the topic. How would you suggest cooks, chefs, managers, anyone in the biz get involved in their community, let's just say, just in general. I had this question posed to me a while back, right? And it's, it doesn't have to be Southern Smoke related, right? I prefer it if it does, because that's our biggest thing is awareness. Once I get a, the, the dishwashers in Montana to understand that we're here, I feel like we're on our path, right? That we're doing it right, because we're just getting people aware. But taking charge of something in your own community and doing something, understanding that you may not know where you're going, Right. When we started this, I had no idea. But if you're not willing to stand at the edge of the water and smash your foot into the still lake, the wave will never start. And understanding that, like, you don't know where it's going to go. But if you're not going to try, it's definitely not going to happen. And so find something that you're severely passionate about and lay it all on there. Because, you know, what? as restaurant folks, you get asked to do everything, everything under the sun for everybody else. Maybe ask them to do something for you, right? It's just like understanding that like, you've made enough people reservations, you've cooked for enough people, man, they're going to believe in the same things you believe in and they're going to try and help. And that's good. That's what you need. But you have to be passionate and like understand that like you may not know today what's going to happen tomorrow. Like I didn't know when Antonio asked me that. Hey, can we do a dinner? Look, we're 10, 10, 10 and a half million dollars into it now in seven years. It's incredible. And I don't see it stopping. Yeah. I mean, I want a hundred million. Like I want to make sure that everybody's taken and care of. We'll get it. And yeah. that's the now you can see once the ball starts rolling, it starts to get faster for sure. And so just understand, like, be ready and just do it. I love it. Start a dinner. Then it, it progresses. Someone's gonna, hey, I know somebody, hey, I know somebody, hey, I know somebody. And take all those conversations. Like, how can I progress what I want? Whether it be through mental health or whether it be through like, I don't know, saving a restaurant or saving something. Like, I mean, originally, I'll be honest with you, when I when we started the off the wall dinner series, it was either gonna go, this is crazy, where it could have gone. I looked at Lindsay and I said, I wanna put somebody through culinary school or I wanna save Battleship Texas. Yeah, well that ship sailed literally 50 years sitting in a harbor, it finally sailed out to someplace else. And we didn't save nothing on it, so like, it could have been like trying to save a ship that really, I don't know, should be parts or history or I don't know. But it turned into something that was because of Antonio became something bigger and more powerful. And now is taking care of people across the country. So amazing. Yeah. So I think the power of some your word, your voice, st putting that foot in the water, not that this is about me at all, but it's actually how I got to where I am with Rach. I was doing a small program when I lived in Miami. I wanted to open kids' eyes to the world of food and have them experience a meal they may not have ever experienced. And I just shared that with Rachel and she's like, let's talk more about this. Come to New York. And here we are over 15 years later with a charity. So, If you don't put it out there, the answer's always no. 
Yeah, absolutely. You good for a quick speed round and then we'll close it out? Yeah, love it. I should end that social impact part with how I say I'm going to sometimes end it, but wind up always ending it. Give what you can, everybody. You can share your voice. You can share your money. You could share your time. You don't have to be able to write the biggest check in the world to make a difference. $5 makes actually a really big difference for some organizations. I mean, sharing your voice, you may not, you could have a hundred social media followers or a hundred thousand. All it takes is one person to see something that you believe in to help you make a difference for others. And then with your time, you don't need to, we're all busy, but just try and plug in, even if it's one hour a month, or every other month to to help with an organization. So there's a lot of different ways, you know, you can get involved. Yeah, you'd be surprised how much your time is really yeah, worth. Absolutely. It's impressive. All right. Let's do a quick speed round. Number one, what did you have for dinner last night? I made quesadillas and a little refried bean. It was good. A little chicken. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Time. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Popcorn. Do you not eat popcorn either? That's disgusting. <laughs> I have my friend David, who's probably listening to this, hates it. And when we did Sarah's live recording, the hotel that we had it at put out this truffle popcorn. And he looked at me, he's like, dude, are you trying to get me to Two lose? of the things <laughs> I can't handle. <laughs> so funny. Truffle oil, Parmesan, yeah. <laughs> and f- popcorn. <laughs> Hilarious. What pisses you off in the kitchen? I think the act of not... Uh, of knowing the right way and choosing to do it a different way. I think that is frustrating to me. I don't really get, I never really, like I learned a long time ago that like yelling wasn't the thing for me. It was more like, man, just don't do that again. Like, come on, you know better, really. The word, I'm a little bit disappointed in that decision. It really, that's the worst. Dad. Katie says that. Katie's my dad never really yelled at me, but when he said he was disappointed in something I did. Oh, it's the worst. (laughs) Understanding that you know the right thing and you choose to do that. Or just not making a decision at all. Right or wrong, I love a decision to be made. What makes you happy in the kitchen? People, routine, humming, just happiness. Name a go-to snack. Beef jerky. I like jerky jerky too a lot. All right. So you once said something along the lines of underbelly is a way of life. You said you you said explore your surroundings, learn about people, where they're from, all stuff you kind of hit upon throughout this episode and how to dine at the same table, learn from anyone regardless of race, religion, ethnicity, age, gender. Everyone has a story to tell. We're always learning. You said it's time for you to start a new chapter. So let's talk about next chapters. Any projects brewing that you can, or fermenting that you can uh, <laughs> share? It's funny because I've just been, like, I've been working on Southern Smoke for so much. And like at home, it's like, I go to the farmer's market. People still think I buy for a restaurant. And it's like, I just need that little bucket of chilies. And they're like, here's 12 pounds. I was like, I literally just need this little, I'm not getting away with just this little bucket, am I? Like, no, okay. So I've now fermented so many hot sauces. It's unreal. It's funny that you said that. But I think that I'm really just kind of playing it by ear right now. Lindsay and I had a conversation that you don't need to sit and plan for it. It'll show itself. And I think there's some really cool things that we're working on, but nothing's solidified by any means yet. And so it'll all show itself at some point in time. And, you know, it's just making the right decision. But right now it's like getting Southern Smoke Fall laid out. And really, I just, before this conversation, had a conversation with the head of like projects and programs and head of marketing. Like, how do I get to this person to get to this covered? Like, how do I get more people to understand, like, how do we get the voice of the people that don't want to be heard out, right? The people that do need to accept, have access and understand that mental health is a thing and it's an actual, like, 
problem that we will say it's okay when it's not. And I was like, look, there's been plenty of things over time that have become like, that started small. Look at DARE, look at MAD, look at all of these acronyms for programs around the country that started small and then boom, you, they may or may not still be around, but you remember them. So maybe how do we get a program that's like, I'm going to stand with you and we're going to be, and our thing is behind you. Right. That's how we kind of looked at like how the restaurant works. And now, you know, behind you is always being said. And we're going to be behind you no matter what. We're going to be behind you through your journey. And so that's kind of our our motto. But how do we get other companies to say, hey, everybody wants to talk about mental health and do something for it, but they don't know how to. Right. So how do we say, I'll stand with you. And so that was kind of where I, I want to push that really hard. If you were to tell your story in a memoir, what would the title be? <laughs> that's, Man, is that that's Lindsay's job? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you'd be like, how does like, I don't know, full speed ahead, maybe hammer that's down. That's good. I like it. How about if it was turned into a movie? Who's playing Chris Shepard? That's a good question. <laughs> Matt Damon. <laughs> All right, man, I'm going to let you go. Thank you. Finally, I'm glad we were able to let the stars align a little bit. But like you said, we could probably do this whole hour, you know, just about Southern Smoke. And who knows, maybe another time we'll spend more time on it. I would love But that. appreciate you sharing the origins of it and what you all are doing. And hopefully a bunch of people listening here look it up. Thanks for all you do, man. I love knowing you and hearing your stories and running into you in random cities and i look forward to the next time too it makes me super happy to always know that you're around to hear your voice and see your emails and text messages and just see you and hear listen to your yeah, voice man appreciate that so keep doing it making it good all right thanks man i appreciate it thanks again to chef chris shepherd find him on instagram at c shepherd 13 that's c-s-h-e-p-h-e-r-d-1-3 or at chrisshepherdconcepts.com to learn more about Southern Smoke, go to southernsmoke.org. We'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes and at beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at On Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Mee. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. And as always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you do have a moment, we'd love and appreciate it if you could rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen. <laughs>